we turn to now to our scripture passage today, which is Luke chapter 5, verse 33 through 39. And if you find your places there in your Bible or your phones, um, if I can ask those who are able, can you please stand with me as we read God's word, as I read God's word to you? These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Let's give them our full attention today. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts a new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. Amen. Thus goes the reading of God's word. Uh, may he continue to bless it for us. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Friends, please be seated. We have our special guest with us today, uh, Reverend Jason Lim, to come and deliver God's word to us. He's no stranger by now, as it is his second time. Now we're officially friends here at New Life Fremont. And so with that in mind, would you help me greet and welcome our uh, guest speaker, Jason Lim? All right. Can you hear me okay out there? Um, just a blessing to worship with you all again. And, uh, you know, invited back, so it must have not been terrible, or either that or Pastor Amos just really needed a break. Either way, it's a blessing to share God's word with you. Uh, this passage, uh, on one hand, is about fasting, but it's also bigger than just fasting. And I don't know what your upbringing was like in the church, whether you were churched or not, uh, but I've had personally sort of a interesting relationship with fasting. Uh, I grew up with first-generation Korean uh, immigrant parents who placed a heavy emphasis on fasting, as if fasting itself would provide a little zest, a little spiritual uh, paprika, if you will, to my prayers. And so they would say, GPA might not be that good, but hey, fast, and surely you'll get into Stanford. I did not go to Stanford. And also, sort of in a passive-aggressive way, my mom especially would say, Jason, you should fast more. I was like, why, mom? It's like, you should just abstain from food for a while. It's like, why, mom? And I found out that she never told my younger brother to fast more. And I, I conclude that, that it was just sort of a hyper-spiritualized hyper way for me to just lose weight, right? So either way, I've had sort of a toxic, complicated beginning with fasting. I don't know where you guys stand with fasting or if it's a common practice within your own uh, routine as a Christian. Um, but again, Jesus talks about fasting here, 
But he also expands on the idea of fasting. And I, I do want to share a quote with you because this quote is applicable to this, the theme that I want to approach today. It's from the great Baptist preacher uh, Spurgeon, and he says this, The sermon which does not lead to Christ, or of which Jesus Christ is not the top and the bottom, is a sort of sermon that will make the devils in hell laugh, but make the angels of God weep. Right? That's a very intense way of saying make Christ the center of your sermons, which obviously for all of us, we're like, of course, right? Duh, right? That makes sense. And I want to sort of extrapolate that idea, this quote, a little further and say, not only should it be Christ-centered or gospel-centered, but for us to deepen our longing, our yearning, our hunger for Christ and what he has done on the cross, it takes a vigilance, a sensitivity, an awareness of our fallenness, not in a hopeless, crestfallen way, but in a healthy, gospel-centered way that will appreciate our, our adoration and our love for Jesus Christ. So today, I have three points, like any good uh, Presbyterian preacher, and as an English ma major, uh, there, you know, there's a strong alliteration here. Um, is it a little forced? A little bit, you know, but it's also a good mnemonic device. Um, the three points I have today, though, um, and I want to sort of peel back the curtain a little bit of, for, for you guys here, is that in seminary, especially during our preaching labs, we're told that each passage in Scripture, each text, has uh, what the professor would call a fallen condition focus an FCF for short, right? Maybe this might help you in your own devotional readings. The FCF, in essence, is this, right? Any text that you read is that it is addressing a sin issue, a fallen condition in which only the gospel can remedy and address. And so if your takeaway from a text is simply be more patient or be more loving or, or what have you, Right? If it's only centered on what you can do, that's only half the picture. Right? The, the gospel in Scripture is not a behavior modification uh, manual. It's actually a highlight of the grace of God that behooves us to live for Him. And so today, I'm not just going to give you one FCF, and I'm going to give you three, not to discourage you, but, and again, hoping that the, the, the balm of the gospel will be that much um, more comforting. So the first point, the first FCF, the pharisaical paradigm, right? If we're taking notes, the pharisaical paradigm. You could even call it a philosophy. Um, in the latter part of this chapter, we deal with some problematic paradigms that proved to be insurmountable obstacles for the religious leaders. In the previous pericope, um, you know, the Pharisees had problems with the, the type of people that were approaching Jesus, that were fellowshipping with Jesus. But this passage today highlights more of the abstract philosophical obstacles. 
And a question I want you to ask yourself and think about as, as, as we're uh, going into the Word today is, what are personally my own obstacles that prevent me or that are detrimental to my own discipleship of Jesus Christ? Right? What are the stumbling blocks, whether they're innate, whether they're external, what are the things that prevent me from really following Jesus Christ well? But here's the thing about paradigms or, or philosophies. They're never just sterile thought bubbles, right? They're not just innocuous things. For what you believe actually dictate how you live. Okay, let me give you a very silly example, right? Um, I, my, one of my culinary paradigms or philosophies or bedrock culinary uh, ideas, convictions is that I believe that Popeye's fried chicken sandwich is far superior than Chick-fil-A, right? I don't know if that's a hot take or not, okay? I don't know if suddenly you guys are like, man, I can't listen to this guy. He's my stumbling block for my discipleship. But that's my philosophy, right? Maybe the other stuff is better at Chick-fil-A, right? Sauces, fries, service, whatever. But chicken sandwich, man, that's my belief. That's my conviction. But it's not just my thought, right? That leads me to a life where I consume more Popeye's chicken sandwiches, maybe a little too many Popeye's chicken sandwiches. Maybe I should fast from Popeye's chicken sandwiches. Maybe that's a lesson here. But do you get what I'm saying? Whatever your philosophy or paradigm in your discipleship of Jesus actually affects how you approach your relationship with Jesus. And with the Pharisees, it's actually very troublesome. Right? Verse 33. And they said to him, The disciples of Jesus fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. In, in this short statement, we get to see the deficiencies in the Pharisees' paradigm. Number one, they view fasting or disciplines quantitatively and not qualitatively. Right, do you get that? They, they, they are judging okay, these spiritual disciplines uh, quantitatively. Right? You see that word often. Secondly, they value sort of this demonstrative visibility right, of fasting versus more of the believer's intent and significance. Right, so for them, it's more important how you fast as opposed to fasting in general. Right, so again, I want to highlight that word. The word often is revealing. Baked into the paradigm of these religious leaders is that the more often you fast or the more often you pray, the more religious you are. And this is a, a slippery theological slope because the more religious you are, then surely the more you can curry favor from the Lord. And so if that's sort of the, the formula that the Pharisees are working with, of course they're praying frequently, fasting frequently, and looking down upon people that aren't fasting as frequently. Do you see that problem there? Mind you, there was a right time to fast. 
We read about King David who fasted upon hearing the death of, of Saul in 1 Samuel 2. The people of Nineveh uh, repented and fasted in recognition of their own sin and the holiness of God in hopes that God would relent in Jonah 3. Like the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, there is a time for everything, and this was a gross and inappropriate time to fast. Therein lies the root of the Pharisees' paradigm. They view fasting quantitatively because deep down inside, surely if they fast enough, God will bless me more, will love me more, or maybe even I would be considered the best follower, the strongest believer. And it's easy to judge this legalistic behavior, this paradigm, right? We do that all the time. Oh, Pharisees, so short-sighted. But aren't we like that sometimes? When I usually ask the nebulous question to friends, to former students, how someone is doing with the Lord, right? How's your walk? How are you doing spiritually? First of all, that's a tough question to ask. How, how do you quantify that, right? I'm fine, right? I'm okay. But how do you define good? And this is where I, I think we fall into this category. They say, I'm doing well. And it's like, oh, how? How do, you, how do I know you're doing well? It's like, oh, I'm reading and praying a lot. Or vice versa. I'm, I'm not doing so well. I was like, oh, why? Why do you say that? Oh, I just haven't read in a while. I haven't, I haven't prayed in, in a while. Do you respond the same way? Maybe not to others or to your friends, but in a secret and quiet moment with the Lord, do you quantify the health of your relationship strictly by the fervor of your obedience or, or lack thereof? I know I do. And then suddenly, like, the, the realization sets in. They suddenly break eye contact. They sheepishly stare away and, and they realize, man, I haven't pr been praying enough, right? My reading hasn't been there. They haven't been going to see community groups all week, all month, all year. And certainly the awkward silence that follows is, is, is piercing, right? It's palpable. It's very painful. Right? We view disciplines like that, right? This is why, first and foremost, we must take inventory of why we do the things that we do. Why we come to church. Why we sing songs of praise. Why we fast. Why we do these things. If not, we will fall into this trap of this pharisaical paradigm. But let's talk about sort of this demonstrative visibility that the Pharisees are also kind of concerned with. Uh, I had a youth pastor that one time stopped uh, worship in the middle of like mid song, right? And it was like it was it was a banger too. I think it was like shout to the Lord or something, right? And he stopped. He's like, "You guys aren't worshiping." And they're like, "Excuse me, right? How do you know?" It's like you guys aren't on your knees. You guys aren't lifting your hands. Uh, you know, after what Christ has done for you, do you call this worship? And then he told the praise team to start the song over. Imagine the confusion. Imagine the, the pressure to 
to render a certain worship in a certain aesthetic, right? Um, and the Pharisees are like this in this text, but Jesus warns uh, sort of against this vis- visible demonstrative type of worship, right? In Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so what Jesus is trying to emphasize is like, if you're going to fast, do it because you love me. Do it because you believe in the mission of the kingdom. Do it because you're following me. Not because you want to impress other people. So my question is this, how do the Pharisees know that Jesus' disciples weren't fasting? Right? If we're going to say it's a sort of this private, secret discipline, how do they know? Are they stalking the disciples? Are they going into their homes? I like to quote J.I. Packer here, the, the great author who wrote Knowing God. And it's on prayer, but we could apply this to any discipline. Trying to describe what I do in prayer would be like telling the world how I make love to my wife. Now, a little spicy, right? A little intense, right? Chill out, J.I. Packer, right? But I think the idea is applicable. What you do with the Lord in, in your secret worship and your obedience should be private. It should be for the audience of one. It should be for the Lord. But again, one of the problems with the Pharisees is that their disciplines were very public. Right? Remember the public prayer of the Pharisee? Thank God I'm not like this man. How condescending it is. But we are guilty of this too, aren't we? Don't we judge someone based on their externals? Don't we make quick judgments about someone's spirituality? A thing that is uniquely seen only by God? For some of us, right, you could say, Matt, don't judge other people. Maybe you are a harsh critic to yourself. Maybe we won't allow ourselves to experience grace because we don't go to enough church events or serve in enough areas. We don't hold titles or, or, or maybe some of you have failed your Bible reading plans in January. I don't know where, where you guys are at, but maybe we are guilty of this too. That maybe I should flex my Christianity publicly a little bit more. Maybe that will make me feel better. Maybe other people will be impressed. Maybe I'll be asked to be a deacon or a community group leader or something. Ultimately, this paradigm leads us then to an unhealthy relationship with obedience. It is this paradigm that tells us we didn't do enough for God, so I must do more and more and more. But the gospel, on the other hand, tells us, reminds us, You can't do enough, so rely on Christ's all the more. You see the stark difference there. Now, the Pharisees come to Jesus with a lot of problematic problematic paradigms. 
It's legalistic, it's superficial, it's, it's uh, steeped in, in pride. And Jesus could have rebuked them uh, for their erroneous presuppositions, but in his perfect wisdom and love, he digs the scalpel a bit further. He's not revealing that the deeper issue isn't just a paradigm only, it's not just a philosophy, but, right, and my second point, my second FCF today, is a lack of perspective, right? So if the first one is sort of a pharisaical paradigm, the second one is a problematic perspective. And I'll sort of illustrate it like this. I don't know how many of you guys watch uh, or have watched the show uh, The Good Place. Uh, it's, you know, it's a comedy. It's very interesting. Strangely uh, profound in, in some senses, right? Because it's talking about the afterlife in a comedic way. But in one of the episodes, uh, they have this thing called um, a living funeral. I don't know if you've heard of this idea. It was new to me, but what happens is that if someone is nearing uh, the end of days, right, their end of their lives, whether it's a terminal disease or of old age, this person would set up a living funeral where they would invite their friends and families and they would reminisce and celebrate the life of, of that person. Uh, and for me, even witnessing it on a sort of a fictitious TV show, uh, it just hit me very strangely, right? Because I'm imagining myself as sort of a participant in, in, in this living funeral. How would I feel if I was either the person they're celebrating or if I was just like an attendant? My number one thing would be, I can't cry real tears, right? I can't feel real grief. I can't manufacture that if I'm a participant or vice versa. If I'm the person that it's for, I would just feel uncomfortable with the almost the fabricated uh, scene, right? I would feel bad for the people. And in, in, in some ways, what, what, what Jesus is critiquing here is this. He's saying, I'm here. The person that you have anticipated for, I am here. Why are you fasting? See, the problem of this perspective then is two things. Number one, they are misusing the very purpose of fasting. But secondly, they have no perspective at all. They miss Jesus altogether. In their obsession over perfect obedience, they, they, they fail to look up to see the Christ right in front of them. Verse 34, And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? What a powerful rhetorical question. Jesus is using wedding verbiage on purpose here. His presence as a bridegroom means that this should be a joyous celebration. To fully appreciate this analogy, we have to understand the, the Jewish culture and their three phases of the marriage ceremony. First was the contract between the bridegroom and the groom's parents. The bride's parents would pay a dowry to the groom's parents, and this effectively began their marriage, though they did not live together at the time. 
The second phase then was the preparation, right? So in Jewish culture, the bride and groom didn't find a nice two-bed, two-bath condo next to the Jordan River, right? And say, hey, let's move in together. Rather, the bride was to move back to the bridegroom to his father's house, right? The bridegroom then would go first to prepare a bridal chamber. This traditionally took a year or not, maybe even longer than that, two to even three years. But no one knew the exact day or hour in which the bridegroom would return. Only the father dictated the return of his son. And so the bride then would wait patiently, anticipating the return of the bridegroom, pacing back and forth. When is my groom coming? During this time, the bride would watch for her groom's return outside the window while also preparing herself and the chamber for the wedding, which could happen any day. It could happen again, a year, two, maybe even three years, not knowing when it's coming. How would you feel? You're, that tension, right? I'm happy, but where's my bridegroom? When is he coming? But finally, when the bridegroom returns, his return is announced by trumpets and a loud collective shout. And the wedding celebration lasting for traditionally seven days with an extravagance of food, wine, and dancing. Stop me if this sounds familiar. And so now do you see what Jesus is saying here with this perspective? He's remarking that it is not just wrong for them to fast while he is here, but what he is saying is that you should actually feast with me, celebrate with me, be filled, filled with mirth and joy. So what the Pharisees were implying in their obsession with fasting is not innocuous. They are actually completely and utterly rejecting Jesus as the Son of God, as the Christ. It was a deliberate denial of who he is. It's as if they were waiting for a different Messiah, a different Messiah to fit their expectations. See, in the first demand for fasting, they were committing the deepest form of sin, the sin of unbelief. It is in their demand for fasting which they fail to acknowledge who Jesus is, See, I wonder if they really beheld and knew who Jesus truly was, that they would demand for such a practices. But they would rather put their trust in old, antiquated, tired ways and practices. Now, a question I want to ask you live Fremont today. How is your perspective, or maybe even a more poignant question, is who is Jesus to you? Not, not to sound postmodern or, or anything like that, but the answer to that question actually dictates how you follow him or not follow him. Right? Do you only follow Christ for what, what he offers you, the, the benefits of, of the fruits of discipleship? 
Maybe you want salvation from the tyranny of work. Maybe you want salvation from uh, the, the tough relationships that we have in our life. Maybe the, 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 the dangling carrot of heaven is, is really what drives you to follow Christ. What is your expectation and who is Christ to you? So on one hand, right, I can empathize with the struggle to believe Jesus sometimes, especially when life gets hard. And in that sense, I feel more like a fasting person than a feasting person. In that sense, my mood is more melancholy than it is mirthful. And for us then, we too struggle with that tension of knowing that Jesus is king and worthy of our obedience, yet living in a world that has fallen. And despite our best intentions, we fail to believe. We lament over not getting that job or promotion that we feel like we deserve. We lament over broken and unhealthy relationships. We're inundated with a deluge of bad news time and time and time again. We see the pain and suffering in this world. Some of us have never felt sort of the dark shadows of uh, our deteriorating mental health, right, today, quite like the abyss that we're in now. Some of us might not even have catastrophic events, but the pit of monotony in itself is harsh enough for us to question whether or not we want to follow Jesus Christ. And to those broken and weary today, fasting sounds more appropriate than feasting, doesn't it? If you're in that place today, let me encourage you with one truth, and it is that rhetorical question posed by our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is here? The answer is no. It is a resounding no. You can't make guests fast. You can't force me to fast when the bridegroom is here. When you have been waiting for so long and the only thing that you hunger and thirst for is the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, I can't help but jump for joy and feast. You don't have to tell people to do that. A couple application points here today regarding perspective. This is where the application is simple yet really hard at, at the same time. Until you really see who Jesus is, as who he truly is and understand the amazing eternal implications of what he accomplished on the cross, we'll always be fasting to a point of eternal salvation or starvation. But by God's grace, he gives us eyes to see and a heart that is open and soft so that we will feast, we can feast, not on worldly pleasures or fleeting happiness, but we will be fully satiated in him, that he is enough, that he's all we truly need and want. So how do we get to that place? For those that are longtime believers, veterans in the faith, you're not exempt from this reminder. May you have the wherewithal and the presence of mind, the courage and the perspective to never lose the wonder and majesty of our beautiful Savior. 
that he is our Savior. He is not just a good person with sage advice, but worthy of our own lives to follow him. That each time you hear the gospel, perhaps even for the text that you're all too familiar with, or if you read the Bible, may it fall afresh to you like it was you're hearing it for the first time. May you pray for that kind of heart, for that kind of soil. May the new year rejuvenate your rigor to go deeper with the Lord, not, not to find merit or to level up as a Christian, but because, as Paul says, I consider everything else rubbish compared to the joy of knowing Christ. May we have that heart and perspective in our discipleship. For those that aren't believers or visitors, I do want to celebrate your providential presence here at New Life Fremont. For some reason, you're listening to this message, hearing from God's words, may this service, this gospel presentation, the truth about the problem of sin being addressed by the body and blood of Jesus Christ, so that we may go to the Father's house, be a seed sown so deep in your heart. You may not find resolution today, or even a month from now, but I pray that by very proxy, you may receive secondhand conviction by the Holy Spirit to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lastly, and I'll go quick with this final point, the final fallen condition. All right, we're going to talk about a pharisaical paradigm. I know it's a mouthful, right? Pharisaical paradigm, problematic what was it? Perspective. Shoot, I forgot myself. Thirdly, a perplexing parable, right? I accomplished the impossible here. Perplexing parable. Now, usually Jesus is purposely uh, cryptic in his parables, but he's pretty clear in, the, in this text, right? He's very clear. But this parable is not perplexing in its understanding, or it's sort of exposition, but it's perplexing when it comes to its application, personal application. And so in both parables, the thesis that Jesus is trying to convey is that you cannot meld the old and the new. You cannot simply put Jesus into the law and live in this constant state of ambivalence. Luke, who is a meticulous storyteller, in his inclusions of details and word choice, he makes a concerted effort to highlight this theme of new, right, newness. The word appears seven times in these two parables. And unlike the Mark telling of the story, which highlights the old, in Luke's version, we see an intentional emphasis on the new. So then why is it so perplexing for the religious leaders? Well, think about the problem that something new can present to anyone. It's challenging. It's disorienting. It's uncomfortable. Right? Imagine the first time you went to a new school, new church, a new job. Shoot, even a new haircut. How startling that is. I remember even something as simple as, I don't know if people still use Facebook regularly, but... When Facebook would change its like interface like slightly, and I needed I needed a day off of how disorienting uh, the changes on Facebook was. Who who can access my witty uh, Facebook statuses? The answer is no one, obviously. So anything that's new 
can challenge us, cost us comfort. But it was just enough discomfort for the Pharisees to rebel, to criticize, to question. Now imagine a culture and theology that is so deeply ingrained in tradition and generations. The parables themselves aren't what makes it perplexing again. It's the application. And what Jesus is now calling everyone here that's listening is calling them to a new way of life, a new way to practice this faith. For some, this proved to be insurmountable, the very stumbling block for them to believe and follow in Jesus Christ. See, brothers and sisters, this parable is rebuking one for for several of us, but for us modern readers as well. Yes, maybe we're not steeped in that sort of training or generational uh, tradition, but the parables for us should give us some pause when we think about the implications of following Jesus Christ as well. Again, I want to bring back that question of what are some of the obstacles that you face in pursuing Jesus? From a, for some of us, this might be the biggest one. You see, for us, we are guilty of pairing Jesus with other things. It's just a uh, spiritual accessory to what you do. It is not central to your being. Perhaps some of us put this thing called Christianity uh, as another thing to do. You put it on your Google Calendar. Community groups is a thing that you, you put on your calendar. Uh, uh, you put readings and then prayers in your thing as another thing to do. And you pair your relationship with Jesus Christ with, with other things. And both parables, but especially the wineskin and the wine parables, especially profound and prophetic. What Jesus is describing here is common sense to the people of the day. Only a fool would put new wine in old wineskin. An old wineskin has lost its elasticity and has probably been thinned out due to previous uh, fermenting processes of the wine. And so to put new wine into old wineskin would destroy and and burst the old wineskin and waste away all the wine that you had prepared. And this is where Paul is extremely emotional and zealous when it comes to pairing Jesus with anything else. Right, Galatians 5, 2, look, I, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Christ needs no condiments. He needs no supplements. He needs nothing else. Christ alone is good as it is. This is the ultimate problem that Jesus is addressing. Jesus, Jesus graciously unpacks an innocuous question about fasting and reveals the root of the problem. We struggle to behold Christ for who he truly is, our Lord and Savior. You cannot have your spiritual cake and eat it too. And this is why the gospel is so hard and perplexing. It is human nature to earn your way. A quid pro quo type of theology at a human level makes sense. It's almost easier, right? The input-output is almost easier to comprehend. I control what I get. Right? The harder I work, the better my outcome. But that's just antithetical to the gospel, isn't it? 
by the very person and work of Jesus Christ, he replaces the old with the new. He replaces our mourning with dancing. He replaces our fasting with feasting. So where's the good stuff? right? If I just hit you with three potential fallen conditions and left you there, we're probably not feeling great of, of our own spirituality. Right? You're asking, where's that unctuous gospel that we came here for? Let me, let me give it to you here. Think about the wineskin, what the wineskin and wine represents. Wineskins were literally made from the dead carcasses of animals, sometimes even using the necks of these animals to make the neck for these wineskins. But the frustrating thing about these wineskins is that you, could always, you would always have to replace them right? time and time and time again. But think about even wine, how precious it was. And similarly, we know that wine was very limited. It was finite. Think about the wedding in Cana where they had run out of wine. But this is why Jesus is offering up a new paradigm, a new uh, perspective. Even with these parables, Christ replaces all the old wineskins of yesteryear. The final, and he becomes the the final, ultimate, eternal wineskin by being the slaughtered lamb of God. But consider more what is held in that vessel. It is this new wine. It is the good wine, the final wine. And when we consider that Jesus ominously states that those who tasted the old wine will not seek the new wine because they are satisfied, thinking to themselves, the old wine is good. Right? This is that like $3 cab you get at Trader Joe's, right? No shade, right? Time and place for that type of wine as well. But Jesus is saying, you haven't lived. You don't know good wine. But it is that same wedding in Canaan in which the master of the feast is amazed and tells the bridegroom, but you have to kept the good wine until now, until the very end. And for those that have been church for quite some time, we know what the wine is a metaphor for. It is a reminder of the new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so it is in that great sacrifice, the good news of our pardon through Christ, in which we abandon the old and abide in the new. Though we approach our faith, uh, sometimes with a faulty paradigm, a problematic perspective. May we learn from these parables. Though we struggle to rejoice in the light and in light of the bridegroom, Christ redeems us by promising to return yet again. A second time, as he has gone before us, already having established the new covenant on the cross, we await for the trumpet sound and a loud proclamation that the bridegroom is returning. And unlike the wedding feast of old that lasted for seven days, this feast, brothers and sisters, this wedding banquet, will last forever. Though we struggle with our own inner innate tension, the constant wrestling and, and feeling perplexed of being in the world and not of the world, Christ redeems that by promising ultimate resolution. We live in a world a watching world where they ask believers in the church, are you a fasting people or are you a feasting people? 
Sometimes the temptation is to say yes to that question. But believe you and me when I say that when Christ returns, there is no, no room or reason to fast. There is no excuse to fast for the bridegroom has come and will come yet again. Pray with me. Father, we give you thanks for yourself, for giving yourself to us. And as we learned, uh, even in the children's sermon, how uh, you give us, you've established this covenant of grace. And Father, uh, how soon we forget that gift, how we abuse that gift so freely. And so we ask yet again that we are reminded of your love, your sacrifice, and that may you redeem, Father, even our sinful philosophies, uh, maybe our shortcomings in our perspectives of, of who you are so that uh, you may be honored and that you may delight in our own uh, obedience, Father. We love you and pray all this in Jesus' name.